We're in Genesis chapter 6 is the passage which we read, but actually, if, if you had your Bibles open and kept an eye with me, it'd be very useful because we're going to speed up massively the rate at which we're going through Genesis. I think we've spent five weeks looking at less than four chapters. Well, today we're going to try and deal with five chapters, so hold on tight and try and keep up with me as we go here. Last week in chapter 4, we learned about Cain murdering Abel, this astonishing story that tells us that within one generation of Adam and Eve's choice to reject God, murder is in their family. When a family breaks their relationship with God, and when human beings do so, their relationships with one another always suffer. And we didn't have time last week, but I did mention it in passing to look at the second half of chapter 4. It tells there the story of Lamech. He's one of Cain's descendants, and he's a a particularly unsavory character. In verses 23 and 24, we read one of his tyrannical rants, and it gives us some idea of the the depths to which humanity has plunged. He's boasting here that he's killed a mere child who injured him. He threatens that any harm done to him will be avenged 77 times. I said last week that he struck me, a contemporary parallel was the bully boy paramilitaries who who ruined the lives of so many in our cities. Well, when I read Lamech there, I don't know why, but that's the image that's conjured up for me. This, This man's a picture of complete and unchecked violence. He's atrocious. Lamech is is atrocious. We're not going to spend much time in chapter 5 because it's predominantly a family tree. Uh, You'll notice that if you have a quick look at it. It's a family tree from Adam down to Noah, but there are a couple of, or two or three small things here worth noting. First of all, look at verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Isn't that quite strange to read that straight after what we've just read about Lamech? It's a reminder, because we may already have forgotten, of the massive dignity that human beings have before God. We're made in the image of God. The image might be marred, but we still carry it. And that's what we're being reminded of here at the start of chapter 5. In this family tree, I think we get a sense that Individual people really, really matter to God because although it covers quite a long period of time, individuals are mentioned, their children are mentioned, the lengths of their lives are mentioned. So each of these people is known and is remembered. And we get here something that the the Bible repeats and repeats, that God cares for men and women. It, It gives us some confidence that he still cares for you and for I today. The last thing that I want to to pick up as we whiz through this chapter is the pervasiveness of death. Men and women were made in the image of God and they were made to live forever. That's something that we, we maybe don't grasp very clearly. You and I were made for eternal life. But here in in this chapter, we notice that despite this image of God, this image is marred in people, and the consequence of the sin in the world seems to be death. 
So we have this chapter that tells us all about birth and all about the long years of of people's lives, but actually it's dominated by a repeating refrain. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Seth lived 930 years, and then he died. And so it goes on. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died. When you read Genesis 5, the, the stark reality of human mortality comes into sharp, into sharp focus. And it's the story of the world. Human beings are born, they live X number of years, and then they die. It sounds very, sounds very black and white when we say it like that, but actually I think we're living in a world that denies death. We live in a world where we try our very, very best to sidestep what we know is an ultimate reality. We we use different words. We don't like to use the word death. I read recently of an American hospital, and they refer to death there as negative patient care outcome. Anything rather than to to use a phrase that that implies this, this finality of life. Call it what we will, friends. It's... As, as somebody before has said, it's the ultimate statistic. It's the one thing that each one of us can be sure of. And Genesis 5 is a stark reminder of that. Right, Let, most of that is in a way introductory to, to what I want to spend the rest of this morning very briefly looking at with you. The rest of our time we're going to look at chapters 6 to 9. It's the story of Noah and the flood. And of course, it's one of the best known stories in the whole of the Bible. Now, we don't always know these parts of the Bible as well as we might imagine, but I'm sure that we'll do better than the 14% in a recent American poll. They identified Joan of Arc as Noah's wife. Um, I thought that was quite, quite funny when I saw that. Joan of Arc as Noah's wife. Uh, I don't think the Bible tells us what her name was. Um, last week, when we were looking at the story of Cain and Abel, I pointed out a cycle that runs through these early chapters of Genesis and actually through the whole of human life. It's a cycle of human sin, of God's judgment, and then of God's grace. And we're going to see that cycle in the story of Noah today. Last week, if you like, in the story of Cain, we looked at that cycle played out in a micro scale in the life of one person. Today, it's going to be played out on on a macro scale, on the the scale of the whole of human existence. That's really what what the story of Noah is all about. So as we pick up the story in chapter 6, we immediately are told how pervasive evil has become in the world. And this is, as I said a moment ago, this is the first stage in our cycle. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. By the way, these biblical writers are very, very careful with their wording. Just look at that wording. Every inclination, only evil, all of the time. The writer can't be any more comprehensive about the state of the earth than this. Genesis commentator Gerhard von Rath says this, sin has swelled into a landslide. And that's very clear. That's what the the biblical writer wants to tell us. 
Sin is, is an unstoppable force in the world at this stage. I don't want you to miss a, a very subtle but a, a very tragic contrast here with Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember what it said at the end of the, gener- of the creation account? God had finished creating the whole heavens and the earth. And we read that in, in chapter 1 verse 31 that God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. This picture of God looking and seeing everything very good. Well, in chapter 6 and verse 5, God is looking at the world once more. This time, God saw something different. Rampant, unchecked evil. The wonderful world has become a nightmare. In verse 6, we get a, a little insight into how God responds to this. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Friends, don't, don't gloss over that verse. Sometimes we get the impression that God, God loves nothing more than to step in and to meet our judgment and punishment, but that's not the God of the Bible. Here we find God with his heart breaking because those whom he has made and those whom he loves have, have turned their backs on him. God's heart's still breaking today in this world of ours when millions of millions of people do the same thing, turn their backs on, on living his ways. So there we are. We've seen part one of this cycle. It's the world's sin. Part two God's judgment must always follow because God is perfect. He's the perfect judge of all the earth who does right. And and we certainly see that that's the case here. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I'll wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I've made them. It's not until verse 17 that we find out how God plans to do that. In his warning to Noah, he explains that he's going to punish humanity. He says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. This judgment of God seems massively harsh. But on reflection, we have to say that this is a fair judgment. Because God is the perfect, loving creator of the world. And he has the right to demand allegiance from his creatures. Unless we take seriously the fact that God created us, we will never, ever understand this. We'll never understand why God has a right over us. But if we accept that, all of a sudden we begin to see our responsibilities before God. Whenever we rebel against God, we're rebelling against love itself and against goodness itself. We make the world into a violent and a murderous nightmare. I believe that when we pay careful attention to the form that the punishment takes here, we we do become more and more convinced of God's perfect justice. The flood, the flood itself is a reversal of a key part of God's creation. If you remember 
Before God intervened in this world, it was, it was a mass of chaos. And we read that the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. The earth was, was a flooded place, a, a place that was dark and a place that was absent from God's presence. And on the first day of God's creation, God enters into this chaos and he separates water water below from water above, if you like. He separates waters in the skies above from waters that are on the face of the earth. He also separates water on the surface of the earth from one place away from another so that seas are formed and dry land. All of this is the creative work of God. All of this is God bringing order to the chaos. The flood is... God saying, well, if you want to descend into chaos, if human life is going to drag this earth into chaos, then I will pass a judgment that matches your behavior. He himself allows the the order that he's brought to nature to disappear once more. Chaos once more reigns, and the earth is covered in water. Eugene Peterson sums it up very succinctly. He says that chaos was commanded into order in creation. Now, by God's command, that chaos returns. It's evident now that sin wasn't a minor dislocation of creation, a bothersome disturbance in history. Sin is catastrophic. I'm not sure that we really grasp that. The effect that sin has on the natural world But certainly here in the story of Noah and here in Genesis 6, that's what God tells us. Sin has consequences on the natural order. Sin is catastrophic. I wonder if we believe that today. Do we believe that it's catastrophic and that God has a right to stamp it out by whatever means are necessary? I'm not sure that we do. It seems to me that today we're in danger of making sin less important than it really is. It's not such a big deal in the modern world, we might say to ourselves. That that sounds like the ideas of the past, Christoph. And God, he certainly moved on from being the kind of God that he was in Genesis chapter 6. I think, by and large, that's how we deal with sins nowadays, or with sin. We make it smaller in our own minds than it really is. Friends, if that's the way we choose to deal with sin, we're barking up the wrong tree. Because sin is still every bit as catastrophic as it ever was. Humanity still stands under the judgment of God as it did at the time of Noah. If we're to deal with sin, there's only one way. There's only one reality that's big enough to deal with the enormity of sin. And that brings us to the third point in our, in our cycle this morning. God's grace, only God's grace is big enough to get humanity out of the mess that it's in. Thankfully, everything that we've thought about this morning in terms of man's sin, humanity's sin, and God's judgment, they don't tell the entire story. In fact, they never, ever do. Until God has acted in grace, the full story has never been told. You see, God always 
provides a way of escape. God's intention, even whenever he acts in judgment, is not annihilation. It's always to restore human life. And we see that very clearly here in the story of Noah. Look at at verse 8. We're introduced to Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then reading on in verse 9, we discover why he found that approval. He was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Think, Think there of the contrast. In a very, very dark world, Noah shines like a star, somebody who walks with God. By the way, be be careful here. I don't think what the Bible is saying is that Noah's perfect. Uh, I don't think we need to to read it that way. But this picture of Noah walking with God is a very, very helpful one. Noah's life is going in the direction that God is going. Noah is, is moving in a Godward direction. He's in fellowship with God, and he lives a life that's pleasing to God. I think the grace of God in the life of Noah here acts as a a very graphic picture of the salvation that the Bible repeatedly tells us about. Whenever God acts in grace towards Noah, he does it in in two ways. It's a double blessing. The first part we might not even hear as a blessing because the first part of God's grace in the life of Noah is a warning But friends, a warning can be a massive blessing. It's only a fool who won't take a warning on board, a warning of imminent danger. So the first part is is a, a warning. And then the second part, God gives Noah exactly what he needs to ride out the judgment that's ahead. This morning, I don't have any time really to look at the detail of this story. And as I said at the outset, a lot of us know this from Sunday school. Noah, as God had instructed him, built a huge ark. The flood came just as God had promised it would. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out as God had said it would be. The escalating sin of humanity met with the judgment of God. But it's a story ultimately of grace, people. The entire human race isn't wiped out. Noah and his family and those who are in the ark are saved, just as God promised they would be. You see, the purpose of God in judgment, as I've already said, is always the same. It's never to to wipe people out and to annihilate human life. It's to bring us back to the place where we always ought to be. It's to wipe us clean and to give us a new beginning. To be sure of that, we only need to look to to the start of chapter 9. Look at what happens when Noah and his family step out of the ark. If you think that God is a God who punishes and then moves on and carries his grudge with them, look at this verse. It's incredible. God waits for them to bless them when they come out of the ark. He says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Friends, that's exactly the same instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. God says, here it is, a clean start. Let's live 
this wonderful life that I have called humanity to. Let's once again live this this wonderful life of God and humans and humans loving one another. As I close this morning, I I want to very quickly go back to something that I, I said a moment ago. In this story, we're struck by the provision of God's grace in the life of Noah. And it's a double provision. Firstly, God warns Noah about the judgment that's coming on the world. And then he gives him what he needs to ride out that judgment. It's a wonderful analogy for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of of Jesus begins with a warning, a reminder that we're sinners. The Bible teaches time and time again that our sin isn't trivial, that making it small in our own minds doesn't make it go away, that it's catastrophic. The Bible tells us that because we are sinners, we stand under the judgment of God, and the ultimate effect of that will be death and eternal separation from God. So that's the first way in which God extends his grace to Noah. It's to warn him. And it's the same today. The good news of Jesus Christ warns us that we need to be rescued. If you're, if you're in the pew this morning and you're, you're irritated by what I'm saying, I want you to, to understand that I'm doing it not because... I want to irritate you. I'm warning you because this is what God's Word does. And I'm warning you because it's always better to be warned than to approach a danger unwarned. Friends, that's the grace of God at work. And it's wonderful, though, in Noah's case, how God moves on. God provides Noah with a lifeboat, if you like. Just what he needed to ride out the judgment that was coming on the earth. And that's the incredible news at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has provided for our rescue. God has provided for our rescue. In Jesus, he's given us exactly what we have needed to be saved from the judgment that lies ahead. Jesus, that's what Jesus' names means. I I often refer to this at Christmas time. Jesus means saviour, the one who saves, a rescuer. Friends, Jesus' life on earth was the greatest rescue mission that this world has ever seen. He clutched us. He's taken us from the clutches of sin and from the jaws of death. And he said, here, you're free. As I, as I reflect on that, I want to say one last thing, one short but important thing. The rescue that Jesus Christ achieves for each one of us is something that he doesn't force on us. You see, God never forces himself on us. He always leaves us to respond to his grace. For those of us who accept him will be those who 
who don't stand under the judgment of God any longer, who don't need to face any punishment because Jesus already has. And my question to you this morning is, have you responded to the rescue plan of God in Jesus Christ? Or are you today in massive danger of missing the boat? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you that first of all it comes to us and it tells us the bad news. It tells us that we're in grave, grave danger. It warns us of the judgment ahead. Lord, would you help us to recognize this warning as your grace in our lives? But Lord, today we want to celebrate and rejoice and thank you that you're a God who rescues people. Lord, we thank you that your aim is never to push us away, but always to draw us back. Lord, we thank you for all that you have achieved for us in Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. Thank you that we can be saved. Lord, draw us into that wonderful new life. Lord, save us and set us free. Show us once more what it is to be created in your image. Show us the the glory that that means. And Lord, make us a church full of people who are saved and who are living the new life of Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is number 665 in the hymn book. Come, let us join our cheerful song with angels round the throne. Let's, let's worship and praise the God who rescues us, who gives us new lives.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all today and evermore.